Welcome to another edition of Top Lines and Tales. And uh, as always, we're very kindly sponsored by Harbro, suppliers and manufacturers of quality livestock nutrition. And this week is quite an interesting podcast for myself. I'm covering ground which I didn't really know about and I wasn't quite sure how it would go, but I'm actually really excited to to put this presentation forward because I think we've covered quite a lot of ground and, and a lot of interesting facts and maybe a lot of things that a lot of people didn't know and, and a bit of clarity from two excellent guests. Uh, let's look at the Chiviet sheep. The Chiviet breed of sheep goes back to the 1300s and is reputed to originate from sheep that swam ashore from a shipwreck of boats fleeing from the Spanish Armada. I'm not quite sure how much truth there is in that, but uh, it sounds like that they're a breed that came in from elsewhere originally. And it's questionable just how many types of Chiviets there are in existence just now as they've adapted to suit different parts of Scotland and, of course, Wales. And... Um, uh, my first guest this week is Tom Tennant from Selkirk, currently the president of the Chiviet Society. Uh, welcome, Tom. Thank you very much, yeah. And if we can just run through the origins of the Chiviet sheep, a, a potted history, if you like, up until maybe the turn of the 20th century, until the, the breed started to divide. In 1791, the British Wool Society was formed under the guidance of Sir John Sinclair, who is regarded by most as a, as a very important figure in the history of the agricultural development. And this society carried out an intensive field studies of many native and continental sheep breeds uh, with the aim of improving the national flock. And John himself selected the native long-wooled hill sheep found in the border Chiviet Hills from all the breeds that he'd seen. And he named them the Chiviets for the first time, I think. And uh, he believed these to be the perfect mountain sheep, both in respect of form and fleece. And of course, we have to remember wool was very important um, back in those days. Sir John had 500 Chiviet gimmers taken to his Langwell estate in Olbester, which is in Caithness, of course, for a trial. And they proved to be highly successful as their habits were suited to the terrain that, that, that they could rake over the hills in search of foods or harder ground up there. And the Chiviets flourished in the fo- following years and thousands were taken north, many from Northumberland. And some graziers experimented by crossing the Chiviet ewes with the Leicester, who we'll talk about on another episode, and, and other rams as well. And many of these crosses were successful, a bigger earlier maturing with, with more fleece, and those became known as the North Country Chiviet, and they've evolved into two or three distinct types now, and that sheep developed on the harder, rugged hills of, of Sutherland. They were known as the hill and the leg type, um, while the more fertile grounds of Caithness has produced the bigger and heavier sheep known as the Caithness type. But uh, if, if we go back to the, the, the southies, the breeders in the area were striving to improve the breed in the west, and uh, Mr. James Bryden of Kennelhead was aiming for a bigger-framed, heavier shearing Chiviet. And it is all a little bit of a, of a grey area here, Tom, isn't it? I'm trying to, to put this history in, in, into sections. The South East stayed pretty much where it was and kept its blood pure. Would that be right? That's very true. Yeah, yeah. the, the name alone, the Southie, you know, it sort of describes it stayed in the south of Scotland. Okay. And um, yeah, and, and, and as you said, uh, uh, primarily the sheep at that time were, were for wool. Mm. You know, that was the only form of clothing, so... Sure. Yeah, you can see why the, you know this this lad James Bryden was looking for the the heavier shearing, the shearing type sheep. Sure, 
and his type proved very popular and Rams started selling for phenomenal prices and, and he had a, 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 a biannual sale held in Moffat and however the severe winters from 1859 to 1861 were to kill off the vegetation in that area and his sheep were unable to cope and they sort of lost their hardiness factor and many of them died and from then the Bryden Chiviot was was doomed but that was the start of the West Country type of Chiviot which had a tendency for wilder coats and, and horns and um, the Chiviot and Leicester sheep were exhibited at the Highland Show in 1832 so I think this is their first outing and uh, this was of course to be a shop window to a wider audience and classes at the Royal and Paris show and Royal Smithfield show of course soon followed and then sales which up till then had been basically exchanges of on-farm deals with some breeders holding the odd auction conducted by Andrew Oliver and son but this all changed with the company holding a sale of Cheviot Rams in Hoyk in 1854 which of course is there in the borders and, and uh, that became uh, the main sale brought Ram vendors from everywhere and buyers to the one place and the uh, this would be the forerunner, I suppose, of the Hoyk Top Fair, which, of course, ran for over 100 years and a, and a phenomenal event it, it would have been, Tom. Yeah, it must have been some sight. You know, um, yeah, it would be a tremendous sight to, to see all these tops and sheep all gathered there for the one-day sale. Yeah, and as I said, for, for 100 years, and I suppose eventually that probably evolved into what we now have at Kelso. But the, a ram called Blue Breast, which is an interesting name, is reputed to have served nine score ewes. That's 90 ewes in 1857, because uh, I think his predecessor had failed to fulfill his duty. And from him, two sons were sold at Hoyk in 1860. Uh, one went to Wales for 50 guineas, and the other one went up to Sutherland. So the, the sheep are being spread far and wide at this time. And Rams at that time, I suppose it has to be said, were allowed to mature naturally, and many of them were sold at four up to seven shear, I think, and the majority of them were sold as two shear, and uh, and that's still the way. A lot of, lot of chivits are still sold at two shears, aren't they? Yeah, our well, number one sale at Locker be, it'll be pretty much 50-50 between two shears and dinments. Okay. Yeah. And a dinment, can you just tell me what a dinment is? A dinment is a shearling, a one shear. Okay, that's a new word on me. <laughs> and probably to yeah. our listeners too, especially our overseas listeners who get confused with all the terminology that uh, that we have here. And Tom, if we can then just move on to the South Country Chiviot, as it's known, which is said is your your involvement. The Chiviot Sheep Society was formed in 1891 and chaired by John Robson of Newton. And the first flock book, uh, volumes one and two, were published in uh, 1893 and as I said these would back then would be con- considered in the flock because probably the pure chiviot wouldn't they? Yeah yeah that, that would be the, the hardy lad who you know after the, the hard winters and, and those hardy you know sheep evolved oh. it would be them that would start off this flock book. Okay and the northies would be later we'll come on to that in a while I think 1912 before they got the flock book together and, and they'd all have been in together to start with though wouldn't they until the the North Country Chivit broke away, I suppose. Is that is that the way it worked? Yeah, that would that would be true enough. Yep. And, and as a quote from from the Chivit's uh, website, which is uh, uh, the perfect Chivit is one which will live and thrive well on the hardest keep, and when taken to the better and lower ground, will prove itself by growing larger and becoming fat. Uh, horns are permissible and not desirable. Is that about some sum up the Sethi? Yeah, that's still to this day. You know, I mean, um, it's it's well known that. 
once you take the chevy off the hardest hills she she will thrive and become a tremendous year yeah mm. and, and export demands grew into the 30s and from all over the world and uh, a huge demand for for a hardy sheep I, I can imagine and when one shipment was sent to canada it was uh, sunk by a german u-boat and uh, the demand was so so much that uh, they sent another shipment straight out after it so uh, they were pretty desperate to get so many <laughs> sheep in some of these harder places uh, and Moving on, I suppose it would be into the 50s, they started planting a lot of the Chiviot Hills, of course, with Sitka trees and forests that have sprung up, and that would take out a lot of farms in, in the 50s, wouldn't it? A lot of these, these hills would get uh, forested over and, and, and probably lessen the, the flock numbers. <coughs> yeah, that, I think that would be one of the most detrimental you know, effects on the Chiviot breed would be the deforestation, because I know just up the road here at Estill Muir, um, there was hundreds of farms up there, you know, with big, big flocks. I mean, 1,200, 1,500 ewes, they were all planted in the, you know, two, three years. That was a huge, huge loss to the breed. The flocks disappeared, yeah. And, uh, and of course, some of that, I suppose, slightly controversial, some of that is looking to come back again as they're looking to start putting more trees on the hills. But maybe that's a subject for, subject for another day and other people, I think, Tom. I think that is the worry of most hill farmers, you know, this, um, the forestry taken over, yeah. and and that's down to it's, it's not down to farmers, unfortunately. It's politicians, isn't it? Exactly yeah. out of the farmers' hands, and I said this is something maybe that's out yeah. of our hands as well at the moment. And and another detriment, yeah. to, another detriment to the breed, of course, would scrapey became became an issue in the nineties, and everybody wanted to, uh, um, scrapey free uh, genes, the, the um, ARRs and such like, and that would result in a fair bit of bit of culling amongst the chivet breed too. And does that have a, a, a longer term effect on the breed too? I don't think it was long-term effect. No, um, I don't think it was just it was a problem, but no more than any other breed, you know. And um, a few, a few of the good old stock tops were taken out when they came back with the wrong geno score. But um, the biggest problem we had is it overinflated the prices of some of the poorer tops, sure. but they were sold for huge money just because they, they had the proper genotype score at that particular time. And you're right, that was the same in a lot of other breeds as well, and it did it did have a yeah. knock-on yeah. knock effect for a while, and of course then, then we get foot and mouth coming on as well, and a lot of evolution wasn't there, so the 90s to the early 2000s of a lot of these breeds. And yeah, the, yeah, and yeah. the the main sale then moved from Hoyk to Lockerbie. I'm not quite sure what year that was, and that would be a geographical shift. Would that be a geographical shift in the representation for the breed as well, or would the borders still be the main home for the Southie? I think the problem was that Hoyk closed. That, oh. that was the main problem. Hoyk closed, and it was about the same time as as, as we lost all these Estill Muir flocks who mm-hmm. who were on the west side went to Lockerbie. Mm-hmm. And the numbers decreased there, and I think with Hoy closing, there was only enough for the one one market. So everybody everybody just went to Lockerbie. Yeah. Okay, and by the late nineties and into the two thousand, of course, the tried and trusted halfbred uh, would be replaced very much by the Chiviot mule, and the which is a Chiviot cross uh, blue headed Leicester, and that that's a good draft, you isn't it? And the, the that that would be. A, a salvation for the Southies, I guess there'd be a, a demand for those for the Chiviot mule. It was, yeah, it certainly was. You know, the the, the, the still to this day, the number of draft ewes that that go down south England or, or into the Welsh borders to be crossed with the blue for the, the Chiviot mule is is a huge, it's a huge, huge market. The the, the draft ewes at one time up here were, were pretty surplus, you know, but but now they've they've got. And as I said before, once you take these girls off the hill, stick them on some of these better lands, mm-hmm. they, they, they pop out 100 and 
70, 180 percent. Yeah. Put them on the blue, the blue top on them. Sure. Without getting too political on here, we said earlier on that, you, that the Southie Chivet probably would be a purer form of the breed without any outside influence, maybe as it crept into the other breed, and that that would probably be correct. What's what sort of Numbers are we looking at now in, in, in the southeast versus versus the northeast? Tom, just give our listener a rough outline. Uh, exact figures, I, I have no idea. That I haven't got them at hand. But um, the, the difference I find that the northeast there is three or four different types of northeast which are doing sort of different types of jobs. Mm-hmm. But the southeast primarily still a hill sheep. And the, the flock sizes of these southies will be 800, 900, 1,000. I, I know of a flock that's got 1,700 southies. Yeah. You know, so I, I would think that the, the biggest difference between the north and the southie will just be the, the, the vast numbers on the hills. Okay. And, and size-wise, would we say the southie would be a wee bit smaller than the northie? Would that be fair? Yeah, she, she, she's a bit smaller because she is, she, she's got to live on the hill. Okay. You know, and... Um, they're meant to be easy care, you know. Yeah. They, these used down in these hills round about me, they're, they're just unblocked. That's it. Yeah. And they are still scanning in 130 percent. Mm-hmm. Some of these 100 on on open hills, you know. Which, so um, the, the breed over the, the last few years has, I would say, they've got a bit bigger, they've got a bit more stretchier, but they've still maintained the hardiness for the hill. Mm-hmm. Okay, easier cared, yeah. And yeah, as yeah. we said, they would be uh, the, the two breeds would be run very separately for the last hundred years and some. Um, and there'd be classes at the Highland Show for both breeds, of course. And who who, was, yeah. who would be the influential breeders in maybe in the last sort of ten or fifteen, twenty years, maybe in the Southies that would be that would be knocking at the door in in, in the in the breed. Yeah, there's you've got to mention Robin Hope from Winthrop. You know, um, Robin was a great flock master, not just for the South Country Chariots, but you probably know him from other breeds as well. Yeah. Um, I, I missed Ian Henderson from Murtham at Lockerbie, uh, Langham. You know, he was he was up at the top for a long, long time. The Elliott family from Hindup, they're, they're actually are mentioned in the very first flock book, and they're still there to this day. Uh-huh. In fact, the same family broke the record at the Lockerbie top sale this year at 28,000 for a ram. 28, okay. Um, and also another family, the Glendinning family from Cossack, Estill Muir. You know, they, they, these are names that, you know, that doesn't matter what flock book you picked up years ago, these these lads were in it. There's a good lot of breeders who have taken over the mantle. You know, it'd be unfair to mention one or two of the sort of breeders at the minute, because but there's, there'll be 20 flocks at the minute if you know, in any good year, mm. they can hit the jackpot at the top sales. Like, uh-huh. yeah. Would there be breeders who kept both northies and southies, or was it it's an, one antagonist to the other? There may be an odd one I don't know of, but I'm pretty sure that, that the southie breeders are predominantly southie breeders. Mm. That's it. Then. Okay. That, that's the way it stays. That's, <laughs> that's the way it stays. Uh-huh. Again, you, it's horses for courses. You know, I, I would think that the Southie, the Southie Cheviot meal won't eat as nearly as much as what a Northie Cheviot meal will. But, uh, and that's with my Southie hat on, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And as I said, you are president of the society, and uh, uh, the society is still going forward. Are you, are you picking up numbers? Is it a breed that people are, are getting into on a sort of smaller scale, or, or is it a bit more like the Ling, where they're predominantly a, 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 a large commercial flock breed? Yeah, 
it's mostly large commercial, but yeah, we, we, we're picking up new members. Um, actually, yesterday we, we had a, a female sale of in-lamb ewes yesterday at like, Longtown Market. Uh-huh. And um, the number of new breeders that we've picked up from, from all, all, all over the British Isles. Mm-hmm. You know, these southies, okay, predominantly the borders, but, but they're coming from Caithness to Devon to Cornwall, East Anglia, right, right through to Wales. You know, they, they are... They've slipped into all parts of the British Isles now, so and a few new breeders. We're not finding that the, the breeders are only running a few years, like like ten, fifteen years, like you know that they are in a massive scale. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I think if you're in if you're in that breed, you're in a big time, aren't you? That that seems to be the way of it. Yeah, yeah. As, as I said earlier, it'll be the flock size numbers will be the difference. Yeah, yeah. I know a lot of North men who who run a hundred years. Yeah, yeah. Whereas that doesn't happen in the southeast. You know, the you, you're up eight eight hundred, nine hundred, a thousand. If mm-hmm. you've if you've got southeast like yeah. yeah. And would they all be registered? Yeah, they are actually. Mm-hmm. Okay. Top tops. There, there's a a flock book issued every year with the, the names and numbers and pedigree of all these rams that are sold. Mm-hmm. And you're you're not allowed to use unregistered tops on your on your site to use okay yeah okay yeah is there any one or two rams that have been instrumental in the breed is is yeah one ram that springs to mind is a a top called glendarg jr he i actually first saw him i judged the chariots at langham show don't ask me what year it was like it's getting on for 20 20 years ago now and he was just a rough Sherlin that probably wasn't ready for show but I saw something in him and made him champion that day Um, Jim Robertson from the Becks bought him at Lockerbie from John Reed at Glenderg and Jim got a lot a lot of success from that top you know so that that is one top that probably was influential Uh in the breed still sticking in the pedigrees and people wanting that that strain yeah yeah yeah, you, you could go back five or six different flocks and He's, he's still there, like. Yeah. Okay. And of course, there is another uh, strain of the chivet they got into Wales, which they call the Brecknock Hill chivet, which, to, in, to a naked eye, seems very similar to the the South Country chivet there. And would uh, would they be a similar type of sheep and from the same origins? Very, very similar. You know, I, I would say that the Brecknock would be more similar to the South Country chivet as it is to the North Country chivet. Uh-huh. It, it will be a primarily a hill sheep again. You know, and probably not just as big. But um, yeah, again, a, a real good hardy, hardy you that does a job on the Welsh hills. Well, I'll apologise to the Brecknock Society that we probably haven't got a chance to speak to somebody from there, but uh, we'll take it as read that they're just as good a breed down there, especially some of those hard hills in the west as they are there in in, in the Chiviots. Well, Tom, I thank you very much for your time anyway, and uh, I know you're involved in the, the Royal Highlands show, so... Uh, Hope to catch up with you there, and I hope that uh, the entries are good for all the stock, and that uh, and we have a good good Highland show going forward. We're planning a normal show at that, this particular minute, so we let's hopefully 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 it goes ahead as we all remember the Highland show to have been. Yeah, brilliant. Well, we'll all get there and have a dram with a bit of luck, Tom. Tom, I appreciate that you taking your time to speak to me. We both just start at the beginning of lambing, so I wish you well with that, and uh, and we'll say we'll catch up with you later. And, and thanks for filling us and my listeners in on the on the South Country Tribute. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you.
My second guest this week is Rod McKenzie from the Black Isle. And Rod's a former president, twice I think, of the North Country Chiviot Society. A well-known face amongst the Chiviot breed. Uh, Rod, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Andy. And Rod, we've already had a look at the Southies early on. So let's take a run now through how the North Country Chiviot broke away from that to form a breed in its own right. And, And I've mentioned that a lot of Chiviot sheep had been taken to North Scotland uh, and the land up there would be different wouldn't it to to where they came from in the borders would be harder land wetter colder probably well yes some some of the land that they came to originally when when Sir John Sinclair took his Chiviot sheep up north originally they he took them to the east coast of Sutherland you know to Owsdale and uh, that's it's a it's a fairly good farm, but it'll be it will be colder and harsher, much more exposed to the east wind off the sea than the a lot of the borders farms. And then, of course, the sheep moved further. They, they were successful, and they moved further north and landed in Caithness, which has got much much stronger land, and that's what grew them that wee bit bigger. I think that would be the the original change that came about the the land itself made the sheep bigger as we said those northern lands those northern sheep would run on would be considerably different to each other really and and hence the breed separated again really into variants of the north country chivid if i can call them that which uh, now include the hill type and the park type and the border type and uh, we'll look at a few other examples of those in a minute in a bit more detail, Rod. If we just go back to, I think, 1912, the Caithness and Sutherland breeders formed the North Country Sheep Breeders, an association to manage the shows and sales. And then that again was was reorganized in 1945, uh, which is probably when some of these other variants sort of came into their own a little bit. But uh, originally it was, it's there for, for the society, for registration and exportation and promotion and breed improvement and and rod you yourself of course were involved in that in 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 the later years yes that that's right and as i say i'm i'm not terribly au fait with the association you know but but i've been in uh, not involved with the society since 1945 but i'm very interested in the society since 1945 and and uh I served as a president twice, and I've been on the council four times. Okay. I've done four stints on the council. But Rod, if we take your family as an example, maybe it may shed a little bit of light onto how the variations from the north and the south breed arose. And I think your family had southies originally. Would that be right? Yeah, that that's right, Andy. When my grandfather started on his own first thing that he did buy were northy lambs in there that would be somewhere in the, uh, around about 1909 or 1910 I think uh, and uh, he bought these northy lambs from McDonald Fraser and then when he sold them in the spring of the following year he bought ewes with lambs at foot and those were southies and that was he was very happy with the southie ewes for a long period of time and developed quite a big flock of them for this part of the world. At one point, he would have had around about four, between four and five hundred yeah. uh, pure Southie ewes that he was breeding pure. And he was breeding them to sell taps in the north here. Uh-huh. He never actually joined the Southie Association just because 
I suppose he didn't see the necessity for it. It wasn't that he had um, anything against that, but he wasn't a very uh, politically minded or association minded man, as far as I know. He just he ploughed his own furrow. But he, uh, during the twenties and the thirties, he was selling up to eighty Southie taps a year, okay. mainly to the west coast uh, to. Western Ross and Western Vernesshire, down as far as Noydert. At that time, there was about 8,000 ewes on the Noydert Peninsula. Okay. And, the, well, unfortunately, the, or fortunately, whichever way you look at it, but, but just in the, in the fullness of time, there are now no ewes in Noydert at all. Okay. But there used to be 8,000, mainly southies, and my grandfather used to send 20 taps to them every year, unseen. And the, uh-huh. Neudert the were quite happy for him just to send 20 taps. Okay, and, the, and they, they came back for more every year, meant that he'd sent them the 20 of the right ones. And... That's right, and one one of his friends and colleagues, uh, who had a lot of Southeast too, and was a gentleman who were, his family originated in the borders, but he did the same. He sent 20 as well, and it was just always the damn thing. There were 40 taps came from this area, went from this area to Neudert every year and uh, so say the folk never came to see them and they never complained about them they must have got what they wanted Those are the sort of customers we all dream of, aren't they Rod, that we all dream of and just... <laughs> and that, Indeed, but as the as years went on and the sheep situation changed the, a lot of the customers in the like of Glen Shield and in Sky they started uh, going and buying taps in Lerg rather than what was that at that time known as the Hoik type of Southie, not okay. the Lockerbie type, uh-huh. it was the Hoik type. And uh, we found that it, the tap market was getting less and less and and all the neighbours round here in the Black Isle, every every farm that I remember even when I was a boy had a flock of ewes varying in sizes from 30 to perhaps 150. And initially, in my father's day, they were all southeast. But when I remember them, they were nearly all northeast. And the reason that they they changed, and those are what they say. I mean, I'm not in any way knocking the southeast because I suppose that's where I cut my teeth. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I still have a huge respect for the southeast. She's a tremendous beast. But the the reason that most folk changed in this area was they felt the Northeast were more prolific. Okay. They were producing slightly bigger lambs. They had a better temperament, and no one can argue with that. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the Southie is a very sparky kind of sheep. <laughs> and the Southie had a tremendously good wool clip, but then, of course, wool became, uh, through the 1950s, wool became less of a uh, an economic factor in, in shepherding, and there was less probably shepherds, so... The folk wanted sheep with good temperament, and if they had bare bellies and threw their coats, well, so so what, mm-hmm. really? Okay. But the Southie year, of course, would almost never throw her coat. She always had a big, a big fleece at clipping time. Mm-hmm. And we'll maybe look at the wool side of it in a minute, because obviously that's been paramount to the change in a lot of breeds of sheep in, in over the last century, when uh, wool now is worth uh, virtually nothing, and. Uh, Especially if you've got right. if you've got to clip it off and clip all the bellies off as well if you're if you're in the shearing business, uh, which I'm sure you have been shearing your own there. You don't uh, you done that. <laughs> bare bellies are much more much much easier to manage. Um, oh, aye, aye. 
Yeah, and you just love it. But you, if you're shooting on contract, you just love the beer-bellied one. Indeed, indeed. And you, I think you told me you bought your last Southie Top in 1972 and, and, and changed. That's right. That was the last Southie Top that we had here. And we had been uh, dabbling with Northies from probably the early 60s and, and crossing what my father considered to be the, the bottom end of the Southie years with Northies. And, and our Northies really... Um, have evolved from that. There was on our, our own flock. We've had two inclusions of pure Northy gimmers bought from friends and neighbours. You know, but but mainly the origins are the southies. And I sometimes think that my my sheep are a little different to many others, and that would be the reason for it. To just have that. We perhaps still a wee bit more spark about them. A bit of Southie in the background, and I would be, I would be. Yeah, the Southies in the background. I would be know. rude to say that the odd North, odd Southie would find its way into a Northie flock now and again, just to keep that going the same. Or is that is it not not the done thing there? Right? Well, you can admit I would it say you want. that that's probably <laughs> true. And although the society was formed in 1912, as we said, and then the organization was reformed in 1945 into what it is today, in 1945, I believe there were 59 members, of which 42 of them were in the, the county of Caithness, so very much centric to that north. And the, the McGill University in Quebec in Canada were one of the original members and continued its That's association right. for a I, while. I find that quite interesting. And I know that in the, the late 60s, Sheep were exported from Scotland here to Canada, and I think it was to the McGill University. It was at the time when the late Bob Cowan was our president. I don't think the McGill University are involved with the society now, but they were for a long time. Okay. You know? And they, they had their own uh, flock of Northeast, which they, they tried to keep us as mm-hmm. pure as as they could for a long time. But that, that would be, that, that, that be, and again, I'm going to be rude to our Canadian friends, but that would be unusual that they would keep them too pure because most of the things in Canada, the sheep are the size of, of donkeys. So uh, yeah, yes. <laughs> there may be some I, bigger I ones over there I if you want to find them. Quite unusual. And I, I don't know how, and there was, there was always, of course, the difficulties uh, of importing or, or exporting. You know, there were so many, different regulations and uh, well, it was quite difficult and even with the AI now it's still difficult because a lot of the AI sheep were actually, the, although there's still semen in stock they um, wouldn't have been genotyped before they died and I understand now that they can genotype the semen so that's opened the door for export Again, okay. to okay. Canada and the States. If we go back to these original 59 members that we said there, uh, I think you said that less than six of those same families are, are yes, still in the Yes, I just still went the through the today. flock books, and as far as I can see, there's only six of those original 59 which will still be um, producing Northeast today. And and let's just maybe as we do on on this podcast have a look at a few notable breeders and maybe name a few there. Um, yeah. Round about that time, there can you can you give me the names of one or two people who would be who would be hotshots at the time with with the, when we go back to that nineteen forty five period? Aye, well, I think the 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 man who really instigated the whole thing was a, a gentleman called Drew Innes from North North Calder 
in Caithness, himself and Mr. Klein from the farm of Noss at Wick. They would be two of the main drivers of the the new association in, or the new society in 1945. And we mentioned the fact that there were 42 of them from Caithness, but in actual fact, the, the first secretary was Mr. Rutherford from Kulnaha in Rosshire. Mm-hmm. You know, perhaps not such a high-profile man, but he was very, very influential in the breed, and they bred a lot of a lot of notable sheep at that time. Uh-huh. Were the McCaddy family from Knockglass, which is just outside Wick as well. Uh, I obviously I can't remember all of those, but I remember some of the big names and folk talking about them when I was a wee boy. You know. Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah, indeed. And, and and would you have names of one or two of the influential rams that would be back that, that time? And maybe some of those that would have shaped the breed a little bit one way or another? Well, the, the two rams that everybody mentions and everybody thinks about, the, the first one that really was of, of uh, that was publicized was a, a ram called Bulbster Heather Jock. And he was bred by Commander Gore Brown Henderson, from Bilbster Mains. Now, I, I've kind of lost track of this a wee bit, but, but then he must have been bought by this Mr. Klein, which I talked about earlier on, because Mr. Klein took him to Hoyk, uh, Tapsale in 1945. That was where the, the Northeast were. That's where they started to, to break in. That was the first Tapsales they had was in Hoyk. Okay. And he sold that sheep for £160, which was the highest price for Northeast at that time. Okay. And that was sold to a family called Jeffries, who farmed about Dunbar somewhere. And then the next sheep, or the sheep that everybody talks about, was a sheep called Carlossi Mighty Fine. Now, at that time, the Royal Highland Show, the Highland Show, if an animal was championed, it was invited back the next year, and it didn't compete in any of the classes. It only competed in the championship. It was taken out in the, the final lineup, and this sheep, Carlossi Mighty Fine, won the show uh, in his own merit, and then he defended his title successfully three years uh, consecutively, which is wow. an absolute, uh, it's an amazing feat. He was bred by Messrs. McGilvery of Carlossi, who were more famous probably for short-term cattle. Of course, of course, yes. And it, he was bought by uh, another McGilvery, Donald McGilvery's brother, Willie. So the okay. sheep was shown from Glassley. And okay. Carlossi mighty fine would have established the the Glassley flock, which had in itself uh, an absolutely extraordinary record. Mm-hmm. You know, they in a, a number of years, the Glassley sheep won the championship at the Dingle Tap Seal, which was a, a big, big Tap Seal at that time. Too. They, they won it uh, 32 times between 1951 and 1990, well. which is, again, quite extraordinary because everybody were really trying to beat them. You know, they they were the flock to beat, lastly, in this part of the world, in the, in the north. But they successfully uh, worked in the north and in the south. They, they used to sell taps in a, 
in Hoyk too, uh, very uh-huh. successfully. Okay. Themselves and the, the slave family from St. John's Wells at Fivey. They would be the two families which, or the two people which uh, seem to manage to have a foot in both camps, if you would mm. say. If I could just go back to the McGilvery's, of course, from, from Cal Rossi, and, and those that listen to our podcast on the Shorthorn breed will realize that Cal Rossi were a mighty force in the, the Shorthorn breed, but there were two or three brothers, weren't there, that all farmed between each other, and it looks like they were probably sharing tups, maybe in the same way that they shared bulls, and maybe that's what made them so successful, because they were bringing the breeding back in from, from each other's flocks, I guess. Uh, uh, that's uh, right. They never they never moved terribly far from their own genetics, the night yeah. Spun it around, and that seems to be well. A lot of people think that, but they, that is definitely the way those uh, the McGilveries and Carl Rossi, and then of course Willie had Willie had a very successful shorthorn herd in Glasgow too. But he sold it uh, completely, stock and barrel, to a farm in the states in the early fifties, I think. Big and then numbers. there was another of the McGilveries was farming. About, about Foppachy near Inverness and at Aldi at Tain. So they were, they were keeping the thing going very much with bulls on taps and they were, they were, they were really talented, talented people. Certainly were, and, and uh, yeah, a highly successful family, as you say. It, it might be easier with regards, I mentioned earlier on, to the different variants, and I think variants is probably the right word for this, within the North Country Chiviet uh, um, sheep, if we look at each one of them individually in a little bit uh, more detail there, uh, Rod. And, and, and if we can start maybe with uh, the park type. Um, I don't know which one would be the most prominent of these or whether, whether the, the crossover, but tell us a bit about the park type of, of, of Chiviet. Right, well, I would say that the park type originally or originated in Caithness, and it gets back to what we were saying at the beginning. You know, the, the native sheep or the, the traditional sheep that Sir John Sinclair took up, they were very successful and, and uh, they expanded from their base in Owsdale through, through Sutherland and, and then they landed in the county of Caithness. And Caithness is uh, although it's the most northern county, it's actually got very strong, very good land and good farms. And uh, as we know, the sheep will grow to the the size of the the, the place will allow them to grow. Yes. And the the sheep in Caithness started growing bigger than the sheep in Sutherland, and that was the start of the part type. And then the There'll be some people who would claim, and I wouldn't altogether argue with it, that um, because at that time Border Leicester was a very, very prominent sheep too, and they would have uh, infused a wee bit of Border Leicester into them to make them that wee bit flashier, and also because originally wool was very important, there's evidence that that they took merinos in as well okay. to improve the value of the wool. And, and even today, I mean, the chibi wool is still one of the more sought-after, if there is such a thing as sought-after wool just now. Okay. But that would be my take on the, the park type. That's how mm. how they originated. And then um, they... They just followed the the name really, and they went they went to the better land. They they moved down, you know, people in in the east coast of Sutherland and down through Rosshire. They 
with the arable type farms or the upland rather than the hill farms, they tended to go for the the park kind because they were getting probably more lambs and the, the lambs were certainly bigger. And at that time when we were talking about about people finishing carcass lambs at much higher weights than are looked for today. Yes. You know? So that those that would be the the reason that the park ones came and where where they came from and then gets back or probably if we go back to the nineteen twelve association, there'll be names there which I don't know, but they would be the originators of it. But then the if we come along to nineteen forty five, you know, the like the the Klein family from Noss and from Field of Noss and Andrew Innes from North Calder and and uh, slightly later than that, there was a family of Robertsons from Breval at Halkirk. Now they were they were really uh, on top of the game for a while. And two of the sheep, which I remember just as a as a young boy, them selling in one year of Breval Festival and Breval Carnival. And I, if my memory serves me right, and I'm talking about the early 60s here, these sheep made 2,000 pounds each in in uh, Caithness at that time. You know, they, they were colossal money, really, mm-hmm. On mm-hmm. if you consider that by today's terms. Sure. There was other, there was other uh, prominent breeders as well. There was the Mackays and a How, and there was, there was the Millers at Upper Milton. All, all these folk, they were really highly respected breeders, and they, they, their sheep were were very, very sought after. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, the next really successful man that came along in the, in Caithness would be Jim Facker from Smitty Coy. Jim Facker had uh, an extraordinary record, nearly as good a record or nearly as impressive a record as uh, the McGilveries of Glasgow, and as far as the the number of championships he would have won at the Caithness Tap Seal. And it, it, worth bearing in mind that he was turning out around about 20 taps a year at a big price out of only 100 ewes, wow. which was quite quite a remarkable feat. But, but Jim would always buy, if he saw a sheep he liked, he always bought it. Okay. You know, he, he was... He was really difficult to stop, and and it paid off for him. He had he had a, a, an enviable reputation and a, a tremendous flock of ewes. Mm-hmm. It's only uh, probably about ten years ago that he retired, and and there's no doubt he is a miss to mm-hmm. to the breed and and to the breeders. And okay. you know we 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 miss him going about. Uh-huh. Certainly sounds like he'd be a handyman if he's looking in your pen, if he was difficult to stop anyway. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> it was quite exciting if he looked at the actual sheep, you know. Uh, sure, sure. And you, and you mentioned a ram a little bit later, maybe called Biggin's Signet, an and influential ram, because it, it was to do with a sire reference scheme, and I'm guessing the name Signet has a, be- has a bearing on that as well. Yeah, right? that's exactly right. Yes, well, uh, in Caithness, then, there was a group of breeders who, who set up a, a sire reference scheme, and they called themselves the Caithness Premier Breeders, and uh, James Mackay from Biggins, he was, uh, has, the, the Mackay family have always been 
leading lights in the breed too. But but James Mackay bred the sheep big and signet, and and he really uh, he had a huge huge influence. And because they were working as a sire reference group, the initially big and signet. He was with used on the five flocks, which meant that his his genes were distributed very quickly and in a, a very short time. The the gene from that sheep, which and most of them, I mean, they seemed to have been. He had a a, a lot of very very desirable characteristics, and he and he passed them on. The Vigan Signet would have done a huge amount of good to the breed, and and then. A few years later, uh, one of the other members of the Caithness Premier Breeders, uh, Messrs. Coggle, Robert Coggle, from Knock D, he bred a sheep which they called the strategist because at that time the Premier Breeders uh, it had evolved into the Highlands and Island sheep strategy, which then evolved yes. into the Scottish sheep strategy. But and that's where the strategist name came from, <laughs> and he, the strategist was used. On a few flocks, a uh, natural service, but but at that time they started using AI, and the strategist did a, a huge amount of good to a lot of flocks, you know. And it was interestingly enough uh, at that time because because they had more data. What the strategist did was he really stamped the female type and he had it was the maternal characteristics of him which did so much good and i was fortunate myself to use some of the strategist semen for two years running and it was i'm not saying it was the making of me but it it certainly in my mind improved our sheep immensely brilliant and, and uh, nice to know that the sire reference scheme isn't just about weight recording it's about bringing all the characteristics through and, and that's and recording right and i mean he was he was bought by the by the the strategy at that time and it was it was his maternal traits that we were really looking for i was involved in the in the selection process and it was it wasn't so much the weights we were interested in it was it was the maternal taste because that was one of the that is one of the criticisms that was made about the northeast and I think they've kind of addressed that is that they they perhaps weren't the most maternal of sheep. I would question that, but then everyone's up to it's up to their own sure. own thoughts. But I mean, I think the the scanning percentages that most folk are getting now of between 170 and 185 percent. You don't really want more than that because no. all you're doing is getting a lot of triplets. And sire reference scheme has, in its own quiet way, done a lot for that. It's improved the maternal thing, and it's it's concentrated people's minds on the maternal ability and the and the sensibleness, if there's such a word, of following maternal traits, particularly when you want to keep a, a closed flock. Sure. I mean, if you're if you're driving down the road of, of uh, big big sheep all the time or or wait, you you could be at risk of losing maternal traits. Sure, sure, especially if you're breeding all for tups as well. And uh, oh yeah, no, that's interesting. Yes, yes. And, and if we move on then to to another type is the border type and and uh, uh, established again in the thirties and the forties uh, and probably as the name sounds from more of the border area, um, Rod. Yeah, yes, it was. I mean, at that time, probably the, the chiviot sheep in the borders would have been the southies, mm-hmm. and uh, there were there were folk who 
wanted to to change slightly, and and they did it in in two ways, as far as I can see. They they went to Caithness and they bought Caithness type park sheep and took them down and put them over to South EU's and then kept those daughters and bred them out that way. Or they came to Lerg, Rogert, and Dingwall and bought draft ewes and. Uh, in some cases, they put they put the park tap on them again, and just it was just a slightly different thing. But then, after a few years, they they got them all looking fairly alike, you know, okay, and yeah. they, they tended to be a shorter, perhaps thicker sheep than the Caithness kind, and that would have come from both the Southeast and the Hill use, uh, and uh, they they certainly they didn't put as much emphasis on the heads but then they were maybe catering for a different market the Caithness the Caithness Park ones or one of their main markets was the half-bred ewe lambs so they were selling chibi ewe lambs to the guys who were breeding half-breds they couldn't get them big enough or flashy enough and you know that goes back to what we were saying here a few minutes ago about they started losing the maternal qualities a wee bit, I think. Whereas the borders farms were perhaps, uh, there'd be harsher farms in than Caithness, and there were more upland. There were bigger flocks, and I think the ewe had to be more kind of uh, self-sufficient, shall we yeah. say. Uh-huh. A bit like the Southie that I was talking to Tom yes. about earlier. Yes, yes, exactly. And I mean, the, the border kind would be more like the Southie because there were big flocks and uh, run on a lot of countries. So at lambing time, there'll be a lot of these sheep. Sometimes they'd be lucky if they were seen once a day. Whereas the the big park flocks would have been shepherded much more intensively. Yeah. Okay, and and some of the names in the, the the border type you've mentioned the Dunn family, of course, who are just uh, uh, about Gilston. They're just at the bottom of the snow gates. If you go over Sutra Hill, I think that's that's, that's Dunn exactly Dun country are, round yeah. about there. Yeah, yeah, another Brotherston and and, and Shustons, and uh, there's uh, uh, there's quite a number of them there, aren't they? And they they big uh, names, the, big names. There certainly were at that time. There were Shustons and. Combsley and Gilston and Nether Brotherston and and then they got brothers the the two brothers who were in Gilston and Nether Brotherston that's Robin and Tommy they got brother Shields as well and they had they had perhaps a a more commercial flock on brother Shields they didn't they didn't concentrate on producing taps there but they produced a lot of taps in Gilston and Nether Brotherston as they did in Coombsley and Shoestains, you know. So they they would be some of the men who would be the big drivers. There was others as well. There was the Coburns at Kingside. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, they they would be involved in setting the border type at that time too. And Blair was judging, I think that if I remember right, was he not judging the the interbreed at the Highland Show this year, I seem to remember. He was indeed. Him. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and and oh, another name you, you mentioned, um, or, or I've seen written down, was East Nevi, which was the Struthers family. And, of course, they would have been big in the Angus in, 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 the, in the 60s. That, that's well. right. They were very big in the Angus. And, of course, the, the Struthers family, East Nevi, East Nevi was uh, a, wee, a wee bit like Glasshallich and, and St. John's Wells. It was out of the main hub of where the Cheviots were, but they were very, very successful. I mean, you, you talked about about successful rams, and there was 
uh, one particular ram which he was Highland Show champion at least once, and he was called East Navy Invisible. But in actual fact, that was a typo, because when he was registered, he was supposed to have been registered as East Navy Invincible. <laughs> oh, well, he doesn't sound like he was invisible anyway if he went he on. He certainly was not. <laughs> and there was another East Navy sheep, and I, his name escapes me just now, but he, I mean, they, they were breeding really... Uh, the word I would use would be stuffy sheep, you know, okay. really <laughs> fairly short legs, but tremendous carcasses. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And we touched on earlier on the St. John's Wells, of course, from the, the Harry Slay, sadly no longer with this young Harry, but there's, the, the Slay family have been involved in Chivitz for the best part of 100 years, I think, and yes. a, massive, a massive record that they had at uh, at the Highland Show with, with any number of championships, I think probably more than anybody else o- over the years. Yes. I, between between uh, St. John's Wells and Glasgow, they they would have had the most championships. And well, in in the the, the recent era, of course, that's changed. I mean, the, the two names with the the successes now would be the Thompsons, Hunnam Grange, and the Ransom and Allen Shaws. Of course, yeah. Those, but but the Slays had a a fantastic uh, reputation. But again, they were just the uh, uh, as a family, they were so able as stockmen, you know. They were, certainly with the horses as well. And and I'm right in thinking we're still in, in the border type, so these would have the, they'd have the border type, but of course up there on that, that good land there in Turriff where uh, they'd thrive, wouldn't they? Yeah, well, they, they as I said earlier on, they they mixed and matched, oh. you know. They, they bought sheep, they bought taps in Caithness, but they also bought taps in the borders, and they sold very successfully in Dingwall. They didn't sell many taps and cases. They didn't try to sell taps and cases, but they were very, very successful in Hoyt. Uh-huh. Uh, they sold females and cases, interestingly enough. Okay. And up until, well, up until last year, I mean, young Harry, although they weren't breeding them for a few years, he, he had started again yeah. You know, before he sadly left us this year. We just move on to a Nos Paragon, who was a, a breed record, um, and in '79 was was surpassed by Clifton the Maestro at uh, yeah, eight- Clifton the Maestro in '79. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, and he was he was well. Many people would have said he was the most perfect Cheviot they'd ever seen. Is that right? And he was bought by uh, John Elliott. Bought by John Elliott. There was it was that was I was there that day. It was it was a really interesting and exciting day. And in, in fact, Harry Slay was one of the one of the interested party uh, to that. You know, and they, they were I think they were back bidders on that cheap the maestro. But there was two consortiums that the these individuals had knocked out before that. Okay. It was, it was the first time I'd seen a, a yeah. bidding war like that, and it really was exciting. I've seen a picture of the maestro and tremendous sheep he was. And, John, we've had on this podcast more recently, and, and of course, a, a great Aberdeen Angus breeders now. And John speaks very fondly of, of the chivets that he was involved in before they sort of moved to, to lower ground. And, That's uh, right. And 
One of the sheep that he did breed was a sheep called Clifton the Tank, which John kept and used for himself and sold a lot of really good sheep off Clifton the Tank. Okay. And, and then moving on a little bit, uh, I suppose the foot and mouth did a lot of damage to, to breeds across the across all all the sectors of, of, of the British Isles, but certainly in, in the, that area in, in and around the borders there and, and took a lot of sheep out. And of course, that drove up the price of sheep. And then we see a lot of record prices being broken round about that time when everybody's trying to get the best stock and get back and, and, and restock. That's right. And I mean, you know, uh, <clears throat> I've mentioned once or twice about the successes of the, the Thompsons in Hunnam Grange, and they were a wee bit like like the, the late Donald Bigger, too. They they lost their flock, and it was just one of, one of the top flocks at the time, and they were taken out in a contiguous cull in 2001, and it it was extraordinary how quickly they got back. They yeah. got a lot of their own blood back from other breeders. I mean, you know, many of us had bought, they had a tremendous good uh, string of taps in 2000. And many people said to them when they were taken out, well, come and take your pick of the ewe lambs off your taps. But yeah. that doesn't in any way detract from their they're wonderful stockmanship. And then uh, just last year, the record for a park sheep, or maybe a border sheep, was uh, reset by Alan Shaw Bullseye. And I saw pictures of him, and he was sold, of course, from the Runciman family to 15,000 and went to the well-known uh, um, Barclays, of course, of Hairstone, well-known in, in, in other yes. circles. I mean, uh, Bullseye really rang the bell, but, but of course, the, the breed record was was knocked again uh, just a, a few weeks later in Laird, but that's mm. that's with the hill kind. But you mm. know, but but bullseye is still he'll be what a lot of people are are going to aspire towards now. Of course, and the Runciman family again, great breeders and great, oh, store, great, great, great showmen as well. And, but Roderick Runciman or the Runciman family, their main business was producing half-bred ewe lambs, and they were buy, they were buying cheap ewes or ewe lambs to to produce that. And Roderick Ransiman was finding that he was having difficulty in buying the type of cheviot that he wanted. Yep. So he started breeding uh -huh. what he wanted. And that's really, you know, that's, he says that himself. He couldn't buy what he wanted. And he started producing them and he has been phenomenally successful. Many of these successful flocks, of course, were were Tiviet mule breeders. Quite a few of them, weren't they? And uh, yeah, they've been. Yes, uh, and that's still that's still their their uh, possibly you would say their bread and butter. I mean, there's a that chap I mentioned him there, Peter Headley from Swinside. Uh, he's not been in the breed so terribly long, but he's producing some tremendous mule mule lambs, which he sells in Longton and. Longton, I think, mainly, but in the last number of years, he's he's turning out taps too that are very much in in fashion and in demand. In demand. Let's uh, before we, we get too complicated, of course, we go on to the third or, or the third variant, should I say, that we discuss, which of course is the hill or the leg type type, and and uh, they're, they're a, a different area again in in Sutherland. So it'd be harder country these these sheep come from. Tell us a bit very, more about very that. Very very hard country. The, that they that they came from, you know, I mean, huge expanses with 
thousands of acres and and not not a lot of sheep on the acres. There was a lot of sheep on the places, but but the stocking density would be perhaps a u to ten acres in a lot of these yes. places. Okay. So that brought its own challenges in shepherding too. And you know, then obviously there was there were so there was such a big area and uh, and that's that's why they were keen to have a, a very independent ewe which could look after herself. And the 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 Laird type is very much she's a she's a very thrifty ewe, mm-hmm. the hill ewe. The hill type then had had their own section in the flock book. Uh, um... Not until uh, quite recently, it was only in 1980, well, I, that they were introduced into the flock book, you know, and it was the late George Marion Morby who, who for many, many years were, was campaigning, and rightly so, for, for that. And since then, there's been uh, many of the shows. Sutherland Show always had classes for, for hill sheep, uh, but most of the other shows didn't. So the the hill sheep was a hidden gem. Many folk didn't really realise just what a, an extraordinary animal it was. So, uh, but one once they got into the the flock book in 1981, and the and there were classes in the shows, and they they started showing them at the Highland. People realised that those were sheep which could do on pretty inferior ground, and they would they would. Another Angus breed, of course, is, is Bob Adam from yeah, from Newhouse. The are, are they, I think they've got hill types, haven't they? They, they went in the hill type there oh, maybe 10 years ago now and are very successful yeah, at Old Allen. Uh, very, very successful. You know, they're, again, great stockmen, but they, they I don't think they have any blackies left now. They used to have a, lot, a good flock of blackies in Old Allen, but I think they I think it's all tubiates on the, that ground now, hill tubiates. And the, as I say, they're, 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 they're very happy with some. That maybe speaks uh, speaks a number there, doesn't it? That people replacing replacing blackies with uh, with uh, hill type uh, yeah, tubiates. Yeah, well, that's that's been one of the successes in the, the breed in the last twenty years. They're replacing. Let's just call them horn sheep. It's the same in the north of England. You know, there's there's a lot a lot of uh, northeast going on to swale hurdles and dale spreads and things like that. It's not just the blackies that are, but, but you know the the white faced sheep has taken over in a lot of areas and. Just take me through a few of the top um, breeders of the the leg type sheep because uh, time's running on a little bit. But uh, yeah. I think we've got a few. There. Well, I mean, probably one of the consistent ones from the county of Sutherland would be Baden Loch, and then the uh, Tower was a, a tremendous flock of of ewes too. There'd be twelve twelve hundred ewes in Tower shepherded by Stuart Henderson, and I mean they produced. Great lambs, great numbers of lambs, and also they were most sought after as the taps. So that was, and then Castle Grant, that's fellow Robert MacDonald again. He's slightly uh, geographically, he's not in the same centre as the rest. He's in about Granton on Spey, but Robert has been involved with Chewet sheep all his days too, and, and he's been pretty successful there the last number of years. Another man who's really, really successful with them, and, and he had a uh, park type and hill type, but he's been more successful with the hill type, and that, that's uh, Will Campbell from Brackside, 
just along uh, the north coast. He's really, he's really along. He's he's not very far from Samside at at Ray, and then in the, in the north northwest corner up near Cape Wrath, you've got the two flocks, Cowdell and Balnakeel, and they're all names to be conjured with, really. Okay. You know. Uh-huh. Then, of course, further, if you come down through Strathhalladale, there was Seusgill and Torish, and they were, the men were related to Stuart Henderson, who was in, in Achentowl, and they were all real top flocks, you know, the, the, their lambs, their castiaus, their taps, everybody was looking for them all the time. Those were the, the Sutherland ones. Mm-hmm. And then in the, in the south, when they took the, the Blairg type south again, the, the successful the names there will be again Hunam Grange who are a bit a big flock of of Lairgies uh, now Attenburn it was a fellow Charles Simmons who's the Langman but it's now Bob Rennie who's in Attenburn and has carried on Charlie's good work Woodside Michael Elliott that's John Elliott's son Newbank is a fairly new flock too they're over near Moffat and they they sold a sheep. Uh, five years ago now, I think, Newbank Spitfire and the Thompsons and Hunnam Grange bought him and he has proved to be uh, one of the more influential sheep of the of the present era. Okay. Another another new flock, and this is uh, a flock that have, still have a successful flock of Southeast, but they've, they've ventured into Northeast too, is, is the Irvings at Mount Benja. And they, they had a, a tremendous go the last two or three years with the northeast. Then, of course, if you cross the border just into Northumberland, there was the Hethpool flock, which was uh, farmed and managed by Bill Elliott. Bill has retired, but it's a fellow, David Rock, who's taken over the Hethpool flock uh-huh. now. And I, I have, and everyone has full confidence that David will continue with the work because he is another excellent stockman. He used to be in Blackie's just at Knock of Ronald outside Sterling. Okay. He's blackies and producing mule ewes, and uh, now I think he'll be going to look to look to produce chewy mules. Okay, and that probably brings us on to one, another one of the well-known flocks there, of course, would be uh, Donny Allen at, uh, and the Allen family at uh, Stoup Hill there at Annick. Well, yes, left them to last, because they they had a, an absolute beezer of a year this year. I mean, they, they, they didn't break the record, they smashed the record. Mm-hmm. £23,000 at Laird, you know, and they had another sheep, and I can't really remember, but they had two very, very dear sheep that, did, that yeah. year. They had just a, a great show, and they've been very successful. And they they have both, they're successful in both the hill type and the park type. Okay. They've got, they've got the two farms, they've got Stoop Hill, where the hill ones are, and they've got Humboldt Hugh, with their park ones, and they're equally successful with both. And interestingly enough, uh, they would tell you that they don't have a preference. Each has its own place. Okay. Well, different different sheep for different animals, which is where we started this conversation. Really, that the Northie yeah, really is, right. is is has variants to suit different areas that it's in. And to a lot of people, Scotland is Scotland. But I mean, these areas are 
so different that it takes a different type of beast and it's good that they're all recognized in their own right and of course somebody else i'd like to mention of course was the the great queen mother at castle of may there they had uh, they had some tremendous chiviots up there i'm not sure quite sure which variant they were but i remember her winning the royal highland show on a number of occasions and uh, had some a number of occasions yes it was it was the pirate kind it was the keithness kind but again they're, they've now got a few of the laird type as well but but no the queen mother was was a, a a great enthusiast the breed as I I can say uh, Prince Charles himself is now he's he's kind of taken over the or the overseeing of the flock of course the the, yes. the flock is still there at the Castle of May but it's now the the Queen Elizabeth Castle of May Trust and it's still the same family the McCarthy family who are are running it and they're still very very successful but of course, in the Seventies and eighties, when Donald McCarthy was there, they had a they had a great run at the Highland Show too, and it was main, mainly with females. You know, they would every year they'd come out with another great yow that would just take everything in front of her. I seem to remember them winning the interbreed as well on on, on a number of occasions. Yeah, that's too. right, and mm-hmm. and the, <laughs> Donald McCarthy had an amazing knack. I don't know how he did it, but he could take a sheep out to win the interbreed at the Highland in June. <laughs> and he could show that sheep all summer and <laughs> she wouldn't be tired. Right. And he would win the interbreed at the Black Isle show with her in August. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's, that's something that not many folk can do. That's the mark of a man, you're right. That is a very difficult job to do, certainly. And, and Rod, that brings us to you, to yourself. I would like to, to wrap this up. But you say you've been past president within the breed and held a number of other posts as, as well. And uh, uh, it w- would have been quite a difficult thing politically. Would it be to be in, to be at the helm of a breed that was covering covering this many number of of, of, of types? And of course, with the Southies at your heels as well. But, or was it just a just a lot of fun and you all rub along together? It was a lot of fun. And I mean, some some days you had to be careful, you know. Um, but uh, most of the time, it was most rewarding. I was I was actually president by default twice. I did two stints at it. I think put, they put me in to see if I'd get make a better job the second time. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, most of the time, it was great because, like most breeders of of most breeds, you know, we're really dealing with folk who are so enthusiastic, and they're obviously they want their own their own business to to prosper but they also want their breed to prosper one of the things that was really notable when the royal was still going at stonely mm-hmm. we used to show we had a, a a fairly big show of northeast yes, at it and everyone would be encouraged to put one or two but there would only be one or two people who would go down and they just went down there and they looked after everybody's sheep yeah. as if they were their own yeah. i mean i showed at the Royal for many many years, but was only there twice. Uh-huh. <laughs> Smithfield was a bit like that as well. There used to be a lot yes, of numbers exactly of sheep the same. In. But you know that was that was a great thing, and that that really improved the camaraderie, I think, sure. and everything, and improved. Uh, you, you got to know people better, and you, and you respected them because of their desire to to promote the breed. No, absolutely. That's, that speaks volumes about about the breed uh, all the way across there. And uh, as we're coming to the end of, of this fantastic um, coverage of, of 
to start with the Southies and, and, and your in-depth knowledge of the Northies is incredible and uh, uh, and a credit to you. And and how's the breed looking now? Are, are we looking numbers improving, numbers growing? I mean, there's generally a lot of interest now in, in native breeds and people swinging back that way. Is there more of a demand for, 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 for tups and, 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 and Northies? Yeah, I think I think the breed is in a very good place at the moment. And as I said earlier on, there uh, we're, we're never we're never going to compete with the, the the meaty types and the continental types. And I don't think we need to even try. They, everyone has their own place. But what we are doing now is we're getting such a foothold throughout the whole of the UK. Now it's no longer a Scottish breed. I mean, there, there's well, for example, there this this spring. There was sales of Enlam sheep, which is just a, it's a fairly new thing, and it's a it's a very very nice thing at this time of year. But they they had one in Monmouth. They had one. We used to just have one in in Lockerbie. They had one in Monmouth. They had one in Northern Ireland, and they've had two or three in England as well as the Lockerbie one. Uh-huh. That I mean, and the sheep are selling at. A very sensible commercial trade, not not going at really silly money. You know, they're 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 there for anyone that really wants them. They could get them to get into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. indeed, and, and and obviously helping spread their genetics right across the country, as you said. That's right. I mean, if you go if you go down to the like of Derbyshire and not now, the the number of Cheviot flocks that are there that fifteen years ago mm. they, they didn't know what a Cheviot sheep was. Sure. Okay. And okay. and these folk are very very good and very enthusiastic. Taking over the country by stealth, there, Rod. By the sound of it, <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Indeed. Well, it's been absolute uh, a pleasure to have you on there. I think the last time you and I had a dram was was in Open a long while ago. But we'll try and catch long up. A while at, ago, but it was good fun that night too. Certainly was, and we'll try and catch up at the Highland when uh, if, if if you're there this time. And I hope. Uh, well, I hope to be Andy. Yeah. I hope our listeners have uh, listened to this, quite a long podcast this week because we've covered essentially two or three or four breeds. But uh, I'd like to, nice, oh, to yes, keep, nice to keep them all together on on one podcast. And uh, well, for, I mean, they, you know, they all they all started from the same there we place. Go. There we go. And without, uh, I'd like to think that we've given everybody a turn as well. And without. Um, Tiptoeing through this, I think we've had a damn good look at, uh, at the Chivit breed right across the board. Uh, Rod, thank you very much for your time. Um, great to speak to you. And, 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 it's been and a much pleasure, pleasure, Andy. Thank you very much for asking me. Thank you for listening to this week's Top Lines and Tales podcast. As always, we're very thankful to our sponsors, Harbro, suppliers and manufacturers of quality livestock nutrition and nutritional advice. Uh, please visit their website for more information or look them up on Facebook. And whilst on the subject of Facebook, why not join our Facebook Top Lines and Tales page where we will post photographs uh, representing this uh, episode and other previous episodes as well. <laughs>